I think the president's language is a little absurd, to be honest. This is not an existential crisis, but he needs to make it that way so that he can get through uh, some executive orders because it's not going to pass pass Congress. I'm just so super disappointed in Joe Manchin for blocking anything to do with climate. Anybody who's got half a brain has got to see what's going on. I think that the Biden administration, the president himself, and Democrats are doing all they can to try and address the climate crisis. But I think people on the really far left don't understand that this is a really important thing to get right and that it's a balancing act. And so to make it long term impact, you know, we have to go through Congress. So President Biden is doing the right tactics to try and get a long term thing instead of just executive orders that will expire in a, you know, after his term. Millions across the country experienced triple-digit temperatures this weekend. The extreme heat helped spark the Oak Fire near California's Yosemite National Park. That blaze exploded over the weekend, forcing thousands to evacuate and endangering the park's ancient sequoia trees. Last week, President Biden spoke in Massachusetts about the need to act. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. The president then announced a series of executive actions on climate change, although he stopped short of declaring an emergency. Recent efforts to pass a climate package in Congress have been stymied by Republicans and by one Democrat, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Later in the show, we zoom out and get a worldwide picture of this issue with the New York Times international climate correspondent. But first, what's happening or not happening in Washington? We get into all of that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from D.C. is Tony Rahm. He covers Congress and the economy for The Washington Post. Hi, Tony. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Also with us from California is Matt Mildenberger. He's an associate professor of environmental politics at UC Santa Barbara. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, let's hear more of what President Biden had to say that last week. This crisis impacts every aspect of our everyday life. That's why today I'm making the largest investment ever, $2.3 billion, to help communities across the country build infrastructure that's designed to withstand the full range of disasters we've been seeing up to today. Biden also announced a plan to build more wind farms. Tony, tell us more about that. Right. So the president is trying to use what powers he does have to take action on climate change at a moment when his own party has not been able to rally around some massive package that could you know, seize on Democrats' rare majorities in the House and Senate uh, and accomplish one of Biden's top goals. I mean, remember where we began. It was a little bit more than a year ago that Democrats had talked about a sprawling package that would allow the U.S. government for the first time to toughen penalties against polluters and incentivize clean energy to end fossil fuel subsidies and, you know, help promote greener, cleaner technology, including electric vehicles. But what we've seen over the past year is a lot of discussion, debate and delay, partly because of Republicans who don't support Democrats as package, but also because of Senator Manchin, uh, who has taken issue with a number of the ideas that his party has put forward. So what we saw from the president in the past few days was the beginning of a series of policy rollouts designed to use presidential authority, though climate experts will tell you 
tell you it stops far short of what Congress was talking about. Matto, is Biden's plan a smart use of government dollars and a smart approach to combating climate change? Well, absolutely. Um, the you know the first best option would, of course, have been had Congress been able to act. But Biden is absolutely in line with what the American public wants on this topic right now. Um, the American public all across um, the country and in red states and blue states are all increasingly concerned about climate change. And this is an existential threat, as President Biden said, um, and one in which if the serious action isn't taken at the federal level in the next year or two, you know, Americans across the country are going to continue suffering this decade and next. Tony, the week before Biden's announcement, Congress failed to pass a climate package championed by the president. Walk us through what happened. Well, in this particular instance, the fight over climate change in some ways had nothing to do with climate change. Part of what Democrats have been trying to do for a few months now is put together a package that can win the support of Senator Joe Manchin, who has been skeptical of the fiscal implications of Democrats' spending plans. Now, Democrats thought they were making progress towards recompiling their economic agenda after Manchin scuttled their last attempt to pass a $2 trillion bill. But ultimately, Manchin saw the latest economic figures, which showed that inflation had spiked in the month of July. Or, or, excuse me, the inflation numbers released in July had spiked in the month of June. And so essentially, Manchin gave Democrats an ultimatum. He said that they could work on a small, narrow bill now that focused on health care, or they could wait another month, see the next round of economic indicators, and maybe he would support some of the spending around climate change and some of the other provisions uh, the Democrats had backed. Now, this put Democrats Democrats in a bind because the clock is running out on them to take action under the special process they plan to use to pass such a bill in the first place. And it really divided the caucus between those who felt that they needed to do something to address challenges like health care costs, which are in fact rising, and others who felt that they were missing out on this existential opportunity uh, to really address the uh, threats of climate change. So Democrats ultimately chose to move, to try to move at least this month. But we just got word this morning, actually, that Senator Manchin himself announced he had COVID. So we don't actually know if Democrats are going to be able to move as quickly as they would like on any piece of this. Advocates of the climate package didn't love Manchin's refusal to support it. Former Obama advisor John Podesta, who now leads the Center for American Progress, said in a statement, quote, it seems odd that Senator Manchin would choose as his legacy to be the one man who single-handedly doomed humanity. Meadow, those are strong words. We should also note no Republicans supported the package. How big of a deal is Congress's failure to act? Well, I think for a number of years now, um, climate change has become increasingly polarized, um, particularly in D.C. Um, and prospects for the Republican Party um, coming together to seriously work in a bipartisan fashion to address this have dimmed. Um, I just want to say um, in sort of the follow-up to sort of this conversation that, that Tony began, you know, one of the frustrating things is that economists um, and engineers and climate scientists and all, all the experts in the space um, strongly believe that the type of spending uh, that was contained in the package being negotiated was deflationary. Um, and in fact, the Senator Manchin himself sort of set parameters on the contours of a, a potential reconciliation deal earlier this year, including climate and energy spending because of its potential to combat inflation. Um, and so the, um, you know, the, the bill also, as negotiated, would have contained uh, both lots of support for renewable energy as well as a number of technologies um, like carbon capture and sequestration 
and clean hydrogen that Senator Manchin is on the record long having supported. And so I think a, a lot of、um, advocates, as well as politicians in DC, were also very confused by the sudden U turn.、Um, and the, you know, some of the justifications that Senator Manchin are offering are out of line with、um, what experts think the bill would do, which is actually combat inflation.、Um, you know, we know that gas prices have been a big part of the pressure. That Americans are facing.、Um, and you know, in a bill like this that would support electric vehicles and household electrification,、um, would actually do a lot of good in insulating people from the volatility of fossil fuel prices. But those would be longer term outcomes. They would be longer term outcomes, but I think the deflationary pressure could,、um, would and could exist in the short term. Now, Tony, President Biden was reportedly considering whether to declare a national climate emergency last week, but he ultimately did not. What difference would that declaration make? I think that depends on who you ask. There are some folks who believe that declaring a national climate emergency would essentially unlock、uh, for President Biden a number of regulatory actions he could take or it could allow him to more easily redirect federal funds towards combating climate change. There's some climate activists, for example, who have put out a recent report who,、uh, you know, finding that. It could help the U.S. ban exports of crude oil, for example, or limit new drilling and whatnot.、Uh, but that being said, there are senators who I spoke with last week who told me that it really just depends. The White House hasn't sketched out a roadway、uh, for how it plans to use such a declaration, but it would really come down to that at the end of the day. It's one thing to just label it as an emergency, you have to do something after that for it to matter. John tweets There is not a climate bill Senator Manchin will actually vote for. His personal profits depend on continued. Unchecked use of fossil fuels. Tony, what do you have to say about that tweet? Well, I can certainly say it's something that a lot of Democrats and a lot of critics of Senator Manchin share. Now, we should say that Senator Manchin points out that he doesn't have significant conflicts of interest here, but I think a lot of Democrats remember well the number of times in which Senator Manchin、uh, maybe said or signaled he was willing to support what Democrats were doing, but ultimately chose to change his mind at the very last minute. You know, we started this conversation、uh, last year with the original package known as the Build Back Better Act, which would have included this. A you know, pretty significant plan to penalize the worst emitters、uh, of carbon and other sorts of pollutions in this country、uh, and to reward and pay directly those that don't、um, to incentivize cleaner and greener energy. And Manchin from day one was opposed to that. But you know, month after month after month, Democrats had no choice but to continue, continue to whittle down what they had aspired to do. And so the feeling was that Senator Manchin, having represented a coal heavy state like West Virginia, was essentially doing the bidding of some of the big companies that quite literally share his political backyard. But again, Senator Manchin says that he's coming at this from a different perspective. In many cases, he says he's doing it because he has a different view about fiscal policy than some in his own party. Well, and what kinds of ties does Manchin have to the coal industry, especially when we look at things like political donations? Well, I think Senator Manchin, much like any other senator, for example,、uh, you know, takes money from industries that are located within his state. There is a much deeper,、um, we could have a whole conversation about this, a conversation to be had about、uh, Senator Manchin, his family, and ties to specific coal companies in West Virginia. But suffice to say,、um, I think that there are a lot of people who have criticized him for significant conflicts of interest, while Senator Manchin has maintained on Capitol Hill that he does not have them. 
Well, the editors of the conservative magazine, The National Review, wrote in a Friday editorial, quote, there is no climate emergency. Even if the worst climate change scenarios are what is what's in store for us, this is not an emergency in the legal sense, meaning the sense necessary for the legitimate activation of presidential emergency powers. An emergency is an unexpected crisis, not a long-expected development, end quote. Uh, Matt Hill, I-, I would love to hear your your take on the National Review's assertion that there is no climate emergency as they're defining emergency. Well, I think there's been a sort of a systematic effort to move from uh, denial of climate change uh, to delay. Um, and I think that arguing, uh, you know, uh, p- parsing legal definitions to argue for not acting um, is is not a very is, is not going to be well received by um, so many Americans who are really frightened by the impacts of climate change because it's essentially saying that we should just not act on climate change um, when in the face of an existential threat I think the you know governments have a a moral responsibility to do everything and anything they can to try and you know protect the public from real suffering and and economic damages and declines in quality of life, which are already happening now and are just going to amplify and intensify, um, you know, by 2030 and into into the remainder of the century. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matto, can you give us a sense of whether what we're seeing on Capitol Hill, um, the, the division in Congress, whether it reflects public sentiment around climate change and concern? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I think... It's really important to break it into to, to two parts. So first of all, there's been, a, I guess, a, a bit of conventional wisdom that's been floating around that asserts that, you know, it, it's very natural for the public to deprioritize climate change um, during a moment of sort of economic concern and economic threat. And so that, you know, as, for instance, worry about inflation and pocketbook concerns goes up, um, that reduces the public's climate uh, interest in seeing climate action. Um, and that's just not borne out by the research, which is uh, which shows that the you know the people who care about climate change in the U.S. and the public broadly, they want Congress to be you know walking and chewing gum at the same time, um, and and all of the polling data and um, and you know all of the interesting research confirms that. There's a second issue, which is how big a priority is climate change uh, as a topic in American public life. And here is where we see pretty significant partisan polarization. So over the last several years, climate change has become an increasing priority um, for Democrats and many independents who are already experiencing the impacts of climate change. For instance, here in California, um, experiencing a wildfire actually increases voting for climate at the ballot box amongst Democrats and independents. Um, But it's not having the same effect, of course, um, on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, though, and I'll say this as one last thing, is that you, you see really intense anti-climate action rhetoric from many Republican leaders right now. Uh, but even when you look at Republican voters in many parts of the country, even in the most significantly rural or the more conservative parts of the country, there still often is a sizable minority, 20-30% of Republican voters specifically, who are concerned about this and want to see action um, often want to see conservative policy action, but they really want the government and and policymakers to address this. So there is a there is a real sense that this is sort of a pressing, immediate threat to Americans. Um, and inaction by Congress is both sort of devastating from a protecting American perspective, protecting the lives of Americans perspective, um, but it's also out of line with what the American people want right now. 
We got this comment from David in Florida, who said, sadly, the time to prevent climate change was 30 years ago. The fact that Congress and the rest of the world even now can't control emissions means it's too late. We need to focus now on living with this disaster of our making. A little later in the hour, we'll zoom out and, and focus uh, on on the global approach to climate change. But Tony, we, we should note it is an election year. So how are politicians thinking about the upcoming midterms as they debate climate policy? Right. So it factors into a lot of the decision making on Capitol Hill these days, as you might expect. For Democrats, many of them ran on this belief that they were going to take big, bold action, not just economically speaking, but also to address climate change. The message to voters in 2020 was, if you give us control of the House, Senate and White House, we're going to do something with it. And so here we are, you know, this is near the end of July. We have about weeks to go before Democrats run out of time on this economic package and months to go before the election, and they still haven't accomplished a central element of President Biden's agenda. So there's a lot of fear. Now, some Democrats will hit the trail and say, hey, you have to make sure that we keep the House and Senate so that we can try again on this work entering next year. But there's a fear that that's not going to be enough in the eyes of voters who are made a whole bunch of promises about the fate of the economy that perhaps, so at least some polling right now would suggest voters haven't quite bought yet. The message from Republicans, of course, is that Democrats have proceeded with this package that amounts to great government overreach, uh, that they're spending too much, that that spending has ultimately caused massive spikes in inflation, the highest spike in prices that we've seen in about 40 or so years. Uh, And we've heard for a long time now these attacks from Republicans about the quote-unquote Green New Deal, although nothing that's being considered right now really looks like uh, that original package that had been talked about some number of years ago. So we're really seeing the tensions from the two sides on display. But I think I should point out here that there's another element to all of this, which is that whether they've called it climate change or not, Congress has done something on this front. As part of the roughly $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, Democrats and Republicans put billions of dollars towards what they called resilience. There was a recognition that climate change had already gotten here. There was new federal money to combat droughts, to ensure pipes could withstand uh, potential hurricanes and other sorts of natural disasters, and all kinds of other things that might respond to the consequences of climate change, even though lawmakers, including Republicans, weren't quite willing to use those terms. So we've seen Congress take some steps here, but a lot of it has been a response as opposed to some sort of proactive event that might address some of the things that we've been talking about today. That's Tony Rahm. He reports on the economy and Congress for The Washington Post. Tony, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. After the break, we're going to zoom out and get a global look at climate change and add a new voice to the conversation. We'll be back with more in a moment. Now let's get back to our conversation about political action on climate change. We got this email from Joseph who says, we should look at climate change as a global problem, not just a U.S. problem. And for that, we zoom out and look at the global approach to climate change. Joining us now is Somini Sengupta, an international climate correspondent with the New York Times. She also writes the paper's Climate Forward newsletter. Somini, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So Mini, we've been talking about the action or lack thereof on climate change in Washington. What perspective can we gain on that debate by looking at what's happening globally? Well, your um, your caller is absolutely right. Climate change is a global problem. And what the United States does affects billions of people worldwide in at least two ways. Uh, first, the U.S. is the largest emitter of greenhouse gases in history. 
And second, what the United States does at home can really influence what other big countries do, including China, which today is the is the producer of uh, the world's largest share of greenhouse gases, and also other emerging economies, India, South Africa, Brazil. They're watching really carefully and, um, you know, looking to what the U.S. does to calibrate what climate action they will take themselves. Are the debates happening here in the U.S. also happening among policymakers worldwide? I mean, in a way, but I think what's happening in the U.S. is quite um, is quite specific. For example, in um, in Britain, conservatives and liberals uh, agree that uh, climate change is a really important issue. Uh, there's been uh, much less political polarization there um, on climate change. Nothing like the U.S. In, in other countries, Canada, Australia, you've seen some of the simps, you know, some similar political polarization. Um, certainly in Europe, there's a great deal of political pressure from citizens for governments to act on climate change. And you see that reflected in European Union policy, um, you know, much more assertive uh, climate policies, in fact, the European Union has a law on the books to reduce the the um, the emissions of greenhouse gases from all 27 countries by more than half by 2030. Mm-hmm. So, uh, though, the, and and they're trying to put in um, some pretty strong um, uh, policies to make that happen to 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 ensure that they can cut their emissions by 2030. Now remember that was the Biden administration's um, promise made soon after it took office um, a couple of years ago. Uh, the president said very clearly that not only was the United States rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, but the United States was also pledging to reduce its own emissions by almost half, by, um, uh, sorry, by half, by 2030. But then this year, we've seen two big things happen that undermine uh, the United States' ability to keep that promise. First, you saw the Supreme Court curbing the federal government's authority to tackle emissions. And then just a few weeks later, you saw the prospects of climate legislation being, being dashed by, by Senator Joe Manchin. Well, Dirk Messner, president of the German Environmental Agency, spoke to the BBC. Here's what he had to say. Without the United States, we cannot achieve the overall goals going towards climate neutrality in 2050. There is a public and a political divide in, in, the, UN, in the United States around the climate issue. And I would say in the Western world, climate skepticism is highest in the United States. It's completely different in in Europe, and we have a better perspective, therefore, in driving our climate ambitions down the road. Well, in late June, as you mentioned, Somini, the Supreme Court ruled the Environmental Protection Agency has limited authority to regulate greenhouse gases from power plants. How much does that decision change the tools the Biden administration can use to fight global warming? Yeah, that's a good question. I I just want to return to what Matto was saying. I think that's a really important point to underscore here. 
the the issue of addressing climate change was not as politically polarizing in the United States, even in the United States, some decades ago. Um, it has become much more so. And uh, I think the power of the industry to sow doubt um, and to spread disinformation has been quite robustly documented by journalists over the years. It also bears underscoring that Senator Manchin has taken more money from the oil and gas industry and made money from the coal industry than any other senator um, in the United States. My colleagues have, um, have documented that um, uh, over the years. So on the question of the Supreme Court case, it absolutely limited the administration's um, uh, authority uh, by, by limiting to what degree the Environmental Protection Agency can protect the environment. The ruling was about um, a, a regulation on, on power plants, which is one of the largest sources of emission. So, so yes, that, that court case was... Um, uh, was was very critical and um, and and significantly diminished the administration's ability to reduce emissions from power plants. Meta, when we look globally, what country can we look to as a model of effective climate action? Um, well, that's a very good question. Um, let me just say one thing uh, beforehand, which is just that I. I do want to just emphasize that here in the United States, while, while it's certainly correct that the, um, the Supreme Court uh, decision somewhat limited some of the EPA's ability, it was a very um, odd decision to begin with because it was contesting a, a regulation from the Obama era that the Biden administration had no interest in actually pursuing. And so for all of the ways in which it partially limited the EPA's authority, I think it came as a relief to a number of um, environmental legal analysts because it still left a lot of, option, lot of options open um, for the Biden administration. And so it was one of those wasn't as bad as it might have been decisions that still leaves quite a bit of uh, capacity to um, meet part of President Biden's goal. There are parts of Europe that we can look to um, that have been very successful at making clean options cheaper. And, you know, in some ways, there's two ways that you can try and address the climate crisis. You can try and make um, sort of dirty energy more expensive, or you can make clean energy cheaper. And I think that, you know, in China and parts of Europe, there's been some policies that have been extremely effective in bringing down the costs of new technologies that both reduce carbon pollution and often offer a higher quality of life. And we can look to Germany there, we can look to, to China, we can look to parts of Northern Europe. When we are looking to places that have managed to wrestle with the political power of the fossil fuel industry, um, the list is a lot shorter, and it's actually um, a really tricky political problem. And I think that's one of the reasons why climate policy generally around the world in the U.S. is going to be most successful when it's focused on benefits, it's focused on jobs, and it's focused on selling and providing people with a better quality of life. And that was Tragically, the premise of the um, reconciliation climate package that is faltering or maybe dead in the U.S. Senate. Um, but I think that is the political key here in the United States and around the world to, to taking this issue and doing something on it in the coming decade. We should say earlier this month, the European Parliament voted to label certain gas and nuclear energy projects green. So many, very briefly, what difference does that designation make? 
Well, that designation uh, lets uh, cheap loans and sometimes taxpayer subsidies be used to develop new uh, gas projects and nuclear projects. Setting aside the question of nuclear, um, which is quite you know, divisive in, in Europe, what that means is that you may well see uh, new gas projects being built in Europe, prolonging the European Union's, prolonging Europe's reliance on gas. And that, of course, has been, um, you know, complicated massively by Russia's war in Ukraine. Let's wrap on this email from Leo, who says, do consumers have no role here? All I hear is finger pointing, no mention of the public's role in solving the problem. Placing all of the blame on one politician is childish at best. And Matta, we have just about a minute left here. And this is a conversation when we, were t- when we talk about climate policy, there is a lot of concern that individual action is not going to be enough to stem the tide. So what's your response to Leo? Well, it's not going to be enough, but there's stuff that uh, individuals can do. And the most important thing you can do is um, decarbonize your home, right? All of us have fossil fuel infrastructure in our homes and our natural gas heaters. You should replace those with an electric heat pump. If you can afford to get an EV, that would be great. Um, Switch from gas cooking to induction stove. These are things that are good for the climate. They're better for your health. Um, and they are helping to remove the fossil fuel infrastructure that exists in each of our homes. So I, I guess my, my answer would be buy a heat pump and you'll have better heating and help sort of uh, get rid of the fossil fuel infrastructure in all of our homes. That's Matto Mildenberger. He's an associate professor of environmental politics at UC Santa Barbara. Matto, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Also with us today, Somini Sengupta. She's an international climate correspondent with The New York Times. Somini, thanks. Thank you. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.